0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Herman, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuff.
1: Hello, listeners. My name is Kemley Phillip, MD-PhD. I'm one of the PGY2 Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation residents at the McGovern Medical School, University of Texas Health Sciences Center in Houston. It's my privilege this morning to be interviewing for our pm Report podcast, Dr. Nicole Stout. Briefly, Dr. Stout received her Bachelor of Science degree from Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania in 1994, a Master's of Physical Therapy degree from Chatham University in 1998, her clinical doctorate in physical therapy from Massachusetts General Institute of Health Professions in 2013, followed by a postgraduate certificate in health policy from George Washington University's School of Public Health. Since then, she's established herself as an internationally renowned healthcare researcher, consultant, educator, and leader in the field of cancer rehabilitation and lymphedema with over 200 lectures given nationally, internationally, and 50 peer-reviewed publications. She currently serves as the chief executive officer of 3E Services, an information technology consulting firm, and also acts as medical affairs consultant for health information technology and biotech firms, in addition to her support of the Office of Strategic Research at the National Institutes of Health Rehabilitation Medicine Department, leading their cancer rehabilitation initiative. Notably, Dr. Stout's research publications have been foundational in developing the prospective surveillance model for breast cancer rehabilitation. For our listeners who are not able to be physically present for Grand Rounds, Dr. Stout gave an outstanding and very informative lecture entitled Exercise Prescription in Cancer Rehabilitation, a Precision Medicine Approach. We are gr- grateful to have this opportunity to interview her for this podcast as well. And without further ado, Dr. Stout. All right. Well, it is my um, humble pleasure to be here today with Dr. Stout, who just, you know, gave us a great. Ground Rounds lecture on the topic of exercise, you know, prescription medicine, and cancer rehabilitation. So without further ado, I'll, I'll hand it over to Dr. Stout. Um, our first question probably for a lot of our listeners is, what is this field of cancer rehabilitation? Um, and as a new trainee in the field of physical medicine rehabilitation, I'm still learning a lot about it too. It seems relatively new. So can you give our listeners kind of just a general overview?
2: Sure. Um, We've seen some amazing things happen in cancer care over the last 40 years. Um, Better screening techniques for early detection of cancer and more sophisticated treatments like chemotherapeutic agents and immunologic therapies that have really propelled and driven an increase in people surviving a cancer diagnosis. You know, when you were diagnosed with cancer in the 1950s or 60s, it was almost just a death sentence and there wasn't a lot that was done. Today, we know that upwards of 70% of people will survive their cancer diagnosis and go on to live the rest of their lifespan, which is great news for oncology. But what we also have learned in these last 40 years is that People survive cancer, but they do so with significant functional morbidity. The side effects of cancer treatment can be devastating to, uh, to function. And um, can perpetuate functional decline not just during cancer treatment and that's a really important thing for us in physical medicine and rehab there's not just a need to keep people functional during cancer treatment but sometimes the side effects from treatment from the late effects that occur after disease treatments can persist for a lifetime so there is over 60% of individuals going through treatment will experience functional decline for most it's not if it's when, and so having physical medicine and rehab engaged in cancer care is important to help people maintain their level of function and help them to live that good quality of life um, as they survive their cancer diagnosis.
1: All right. So as you you know already hinted on um, this kind of continuum care as you go from, you know, diagnosis to treatment and then later on survivorship know kind of contributing to the the need for um, our field and you know cancer rehabilitation itself can you uh, kind of talk more about how this translates to what you were talking about um, in our grand lecture uh, grand rounds lecture sorry this morning with respect to the exercise dose response um, and kind of that cancer rehabilitation specific continuum of care
2: sure um, one of the things about rehab right rehabilitation is just even in the name rehab it's it it, it, it it's reactive It intimates that we react to a situation. And typically the construct of rehabilitation medicine has been around post-operative care, post-injury. So people have a problem, they have deficits, and we fix them, we rehabilitate them. But cancer is different. And people do experience functional decline that need rehabilitation. But we have an unprecedented opportunity in oncology to be at the point of diagnosis of cancer and understand an individual's risk for functional decline and to work with them applying therapeutic exercise and applying exercise prescriptions that can mitigate functional decline during treatment. And that's exciting. It's very different, it's a proactive approach to care. It's more of a secondary prevention approach to medicine, which I think is not the tradition, uh, traditional framework that we work in in rehabilitation. Uh, and we're moving towards this prospective model of care in cancer because the research and evidence are so compelling that when we use rehab providers from the point of diagnosis in an ongoing fashion to reassess, uh, re-evaluate these patients throughout the continuum of care, we find emerging impairment early um, before it capitulates into disability. We can manage impairment early when it's in a less severe stage and we can prevent the functional decline or mitigate at least to a great degree So this is a different place for rehab providers. We're not going to idly stand by and wait for referrals to come to us when people are severely fatigued um, or have severe cognitive deficits and can't go back to work. They're They're on a disablement pathway. We have the opportunity to be proactive with this population, but that requires us to not stand back and wait for the referrals to come. It requires us to proactively engage the medical oncology community and be a part of cancer centers and cancer care from the point of diagnosis in that ongoing interval reassessment throughout the continuum of care. And so it, it's a very different paradigm for us to move into in rehabilitation. It's very exciting though because it's about enablement and encouraging maintenance of participation rather than
1: the disablement model where we're trying to fix people. <clears throat> Absolutely. And so, you know, kind of coming from that couple questions I have. so. It, would you say there's a certain population that benefits most from this? Like, does this look different for, you know, you mentioned the geriatric oncology population versus pediatric oncology population. What do we know? Like, what kind of data is there, you know, at this, at this point in time? Sure, sure. And that's one of the things about
2: cancer in general, right? It does not discriminate based on lifespan, gender, ethnicity. Everyone can suffer a cancer diagnosis. And what I like to say when I think about rehabilitation and exercise in the cancer population, everyone needs something. Everyone who has a diagnosis and is going through treatment needs some exercise intervention. That may be for someone who's severely deconditioned. It may be something more proactive and uh, uh, low-intensity exercise, helping them to recondition. Um, for people who have therapeutic, uh, need therapeutic exercise for impairment remediation. So it's it's different throughout that continuum of care, um, regardless of age, gender, etc. But what we do see are some very um, specific points at which we can intercede with rehabilitation. We also um, have growing bodies of evidence in some very specific populations. Um, So, for example, at the point of diagnosis, we know everyone should have an exercise prescription that gives them a baseline of uh, understanding of how to move. 150 minutes accumulated three times a week is the American College of Sports Medicine recommendation. But that's not good enough for some individuals. The literature shows us that in some subset of the population, there's an indication for prehabilitation, which is an episode of care a rehabilitative episode of care and exercise prescription before they even start cancer treatment. The evidence is strong in this area for lung cancer, colorectal and GI cancers, and gynecological cancers. Large systematic reviews have been done. Not only do these individuals fare better functionally when they get a prehab episode of care they also have better endpoints with regard to health utilization healthcare service utilization they're in the hospital for shorter time periods they suffer less surgical adverse events um, less hospitalizations readmissions and better tolerance to chemotherapy that's a big value add for rehabilitation being up front Um, There are also, as we move through the continuum of care, there are different groups of patients that will need different things. And sometimes that's by disease state, right? Well, there's so much information about the breast cancer population. Postoperative exercises to restore upper extremity, mobility, and function. Um, The prostate population... Those individuals undergoing androgen deprivation therapies, we know they're going to lose lean mass, they're going to lose bone density. There's a body of literature that supports intervention there. But then, when you even look at some of the intervention, the anti-neoplastic interventions, chemotherapeutic neurotoxicity, peripheral neuropathies related to chemo, CIPN, um, that is across multiple types of cancers, do we use neurotoxic agents? So things like platinum-based drugs, taxane-based drugs, cause peripheral neuropathies to a high degree. Regardless of the type of cancer, individuals undergoing those chemotherapeutic agents, using those chemotherapeutic agents, should be assessed for balance, gait, uh, ADL function. And we should do that before they start. Treatment, So we know what's normal and then monitor them during chemotherapy to identify if there are changes that occur that need to be uh, that need to be mitigated or re- rehabilitated. But the trick with those, and this is a population that really needs our attention. The trick with CIPN is that Um, We know the nerves will heal in time. We know that there will be improvements in the sensation of the neuropathies, but here's the dirty secret. Recent evidence is telling us that even years after the completion of neurotoxic chemotherapy, The treatments are not done with the patient. So a recent article published in JCO, Carrie Winterstone, uh, found that even after an average of six years after completion of neurotoxic chemotherapy, a majority of patients had measurable balance and gait deficits. Measurable. So these are not hidden things. So it really speaks to there's um, an ongoing need for rehab therapeutic exercise and exercise interventions at varying time points across that continuum of care, um, across populations of different types of cancers. So really, inherent in all of this is that rehab providers need to elevate their baseline level of knowledge about cancer. Mm -hmm. The disease treatment, the continuum of care, the side effects of treatment, and the anticipated functional impact that that has. Because that's really where we can then begin to deliver more more tailored approaches knowing a chemo a, a, a chemotherapeutic agent that's neurotoxic is being used takes me down a treatment pathway knowing that a cardiotoxic agent like an anthracycline is being used takes me down a different treatment pathway mm-hmm. so it becomes a it's really a specialized area of rehabilitation i think
1: and so <clears throat> you hinted on here which i think you know is like the new Um, You know, new catchphrase, maybe uh, the prehabilitation. Can you kind of talk more, you know, specifically like what all that actually entails? Any specific examples um, for our listeners who may have just been diagnosed uh, with a new type of cancer, what that looks like for them? Sure. Prehabilitation
2: is not a new concept, Mm -hmm. nor is it exclusive to cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been using, in rehab especially, we use prehabilitation. Um, surgical training, pre-surgical conditioning um, for things like total joint replacements. We do pre-exercise episodes of care to strengthen and prepare those individuals to have better outcomes because we know it impacts outcomes in a positive way. So joint replacements, ACL uh, reconstructions, procedures like that, some orthopedic procedures that are not emergent, um, we have learned that An episode of rehabilitation can help to strengthen them and prepare them for treatment. So here comes cancer, right? We know that cancer treatments are going to do terrible things to the body and cause functional decline, multi-system impact in the body. What a great opportunity for us to say an exercise episode of care could better prepare individuals um, to meet the challenges associated with cancer treatments from a functional perspective. So... You asked for some, some examples. Um, most of the time when someone is diagnosed with cancer, they are not, in some instances they are, but they are not emergently started into treatment. Mm-hmm. And so there's a time period. Sometimes it's three weeks, sometimes it's more. So what we've identified is that in some populations, like I said earlier, lung cancer, let's just take that as an example, um, those individuals tend to come into and be diagnosed with cancer, um, with high comorbidities, so they've got a lot of comorbidities, they're on a lot of medications, they may not have the best um, exercise and lifestyle behavior habits, they may be more sedentary. We tend to see that in that group of people at baseline. Um, it takes a while to stage, uh, to do the imaging and the tests and the scans to appropriately stage and create a plan of care for lung cancer. And so the evidence that um, two to three times a week of a moderate intensity exercise program supervised um, by a rehabilitation provider uh, can really help to improve that individual's functional performance status and um, also makes an impact on their outcomes, their surgical outcomes. So that's one example just of the exercise piece. But I'll take that to another level and share with you the enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, ERAS. Um, if you look at, go to PubMed and just put in a search for enhanced recovery after surgery and you will see an explosion of literature. Um, ERAS includes prehabilitation exercise, but it's a part of a multidimensional preparatory pathway for patients undergoing uh, major GI surgeries, including cancer, colorectal cancers, gynecological cancers, etc. So ERAS includes um, this preoperative time period where nutrition uh, considerations and consultations are given, anxiety and depression management, nutrition status is assessed, uh, in addition to um, cognitive uh, behavioral issues and exercise. So a functional performance test is done, an exercise prescription is made. Now, it doesn't just involve prehab, it also involves that perioperative time period. So getting folks beyond the surgery and back into their habits of daily life, trying to better facilitate adherence and incorporation of exercise. That's really, I think, a big hook for us in rehabilitation because, let's be honest, when the surgeons are the ones driving mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the inclusion of exercise and the inclusion of prehab, uh, it, it's going to happen. That, that's, a, that's a big lever mm-hmm. for us to be able to pull is to have the surgeon on board and to have that as a part of their protocol. Yeah. Um, we then become a necessary component of care standard, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see guidelines that articulate that the colorectal, there was an international colorectal consensus guideline mm-hmm. that just came out um, recommending ERAP as a standard of care. So it's very exciting to see prehab. And the other thing that that does, if you'll just let me for one more minute tell you, the other thing that that does is it gets rehab engaged at the point of care so that the patient says, Hey, this is my therapist, mm-hmm. right? This is who I have on my cancer care team. team. You're not an afterthought six months mm-hmm. down the line when the patient's disabled or in severe pain or suffering severe fatigue. You're a part of the team and the patient sees it that way. And that is invaluable for us to better link and better integrate our services into cancer care. Because if the patient thinks you're important and the patient sees the value in that, their adherence is better, their outcomes are better. It
1: helps us to better promote function along the continuum. Absolutely. Um, And I think towards the end of your talk, you know, you kind of highlighted on how that team may look different at different points in this continuum. Um, And then you were kind of talking about uh, even within the survivorship stage, how it may be different depending on the resources that are available to them. Can you you know, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's so many challenges because the cancer care continuum, literally we
2: deliver medically directed therapies to cancer patients for at least a year, sometimes up to five years, and sometimes beyond that even. People who have advanced cancer will be on some form of treatment for the rest of their life. And so it really is important for us to think about how do we follow them, monitor, and identify their needs, right? Because it's not just give them an exercise program today. Today's exercise program is right, but in six months it's wrong because now they have different side effects. They're um, they're experiencing different um, late effects of their treatment. They need a different exercise prescription or different exercise program. And that is a challenge, right? So we can't We don't expect to see them for rehab two to three times a week for the rest of their life. It's just Mm -hmm. untenable, but we should get into a cadence of repeat assessment, uh, repeat evaluation of functional changes, whether that's every six months, whether that's yearly. Um, Sometimes it's in conjunction with their primary care physician. Um, Is it PT? Is it OT? Is it speech therapy? Right? It depends on the patient's needs. So really, this is about a precision medicine approach the right intervention to the right patient at the right time. Mm-hmm. And the time is really the big challenge in cancer. So I um, I, I like to think of when I, would, when I see and follow my patients, some of them I just see yearly. And my mantra to them is, I'll see you back in a year. If everything looks good, I'll see you back in a year. Unless something comes up, come in and see me sooner. So that they feel like they always have that touch point back to a provider that can help them if they run into some type of pain or functional problem. Um, This doesn't end if they have advanced disease or metastatic disease even, uh, if they're on hospice care or even progressing towards end of life because even then there's strong evidence that rehabilitation interventions can help to preserve safety Mm -hmm. at the end of life, can preserve function independence, can give caregiver support and advice Um, you know, even as individuals move towards end of life, there is benefit to rehabilitation providers. Sometimes that's in the home, sometimes that's in an inpatient setting. So across settings, again, and throughout that duration of the lifespan, we have to think about people with cancer differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't just, as I said, a restorative three to four weeks of care, and then we're done, and they're right. discharged. I almost say I, I, these folks are never discharged, right? Mm-hmm. And the insurance companies don't want to hear that. But they're never discharged, really. There's this ongoing touch point. I'm, I always say, I'm in the backcourt. If you ever need me, mm-hmm. we can put on a full court press when we need to. Okay.
1: And... Um... So, you know, you, you kind of highlighted where I was going with, uh, with respect to kind of survivorship and then, you know, long-term survival and how the face of the rehabilitation we're doing or the, the precision, you know, exercise-specific um, prescription that we're providing them may change. Uh, you mentioned how there's evidence to suggest that utilization of rehabilitation itself can Prolonged survival, not necessarily um, disease-free survival. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's a lot that we
2: can do to help people maintain function mm-hmm. um, and to help them. The, the interesting in some of the lung cancer uh, research. Uh, in advanced lung cancer, these patients tend to uh, live longer with better quality of life when they are involved in an exercise program. Um, If you look at the EXHALE trial uh, out of Denmark, and some of the findings in advanced cancer patients, they were using moderate to high-intensity exercise aerobic training, which was fantastic, and the patients had high levels of adherence. So it really speaks to Um, the impact that we can have, not only on quality of life, and this is a really important point to make. If we look at the literature around exercise, it's heavily, heavily focused on um, physiological outcomes, Mm -hmm. endurance, VO2 max, um, fitness tests, if you will. Yeah. Um, the other thing we see a lot in the outcome of outcomes reported in the literature are around quality of life. Mm-hmm. And but where there's a gap is around mm-hmm. measuring function. Um, so the functional performance measures that you and I use in our practice every day, the short physical performance battery, um, you know, tests of mobility and 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 function. Are 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 really underreported in the literature. The other place where I think we fall short, and this gets back to your question, original question, is tracking the impact that our interventions have on important disease-specific outcomes. Does having rehabilitation as a part of the care continuum, an exercise plan of care, does that impact? disease-free survival? Does it impact overall survival? We're starting to see some of the health services research questions being investigated, Mm -hmm. looking at cost mitigation. That's huge. If we can demonstrate, because rehab costs money. Mm -hmm. It is a cost outlay to have a rehab consult. It's a cost outlay for us to intervene. But if we compare that to, do we reduce the, the days in the hospital? Do we reduce um, adverse events from surgery? Do we cut down on the imaging tests that an individual needs? Are they more adherent to their chemotherapy? Do we have less gaps and stops in care because they can tolerate their therapy? That's a place where I think we need to really hone in and focus our future research. Preliminarily, there is evidence that suggests all of that there, mm-hmm. especially in lung. Um, that we have we are cost savings there's also um, we my research group published a direct cost analysis of using early rehabilitation for early identification of lymphedema mm-hmm. and found that when we identify lymphedema early we manage it very conservatively and prevent it from progressing to a later stage the cost savings can be tremendous even with the cost of the additional rehabilitation visits the visits to the physical therapist, Um, really did not come close to touching what the cost would be to treat much more advanced stage two or beyond lymphedema. So we're starting to see some work in those areas and I think we as researchers in the field of cancer rehabilitation if you're out there and you're thinking of a research protocol Mm -hmm. think about those health services endpoints because what my opinion is what we need what we do not need is another 12-week randomized controlled trial of exercise in colorectal cancer. Um, That's a supervised program that falls off after 12 weeks and we follow them up in six months or a year to see how their function is. That's not that those things are important. That's out there. It's done. The effectiveness of rehab interventions I think is well enough established at this point that we need to start looking at the bigger picture. How do we impact cancer care? Mm -hmm. How do we impact survival and other disease endpoints? That's where we need to be going. Wow, <laughs> and it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. exciting To think about that, S- sit down for time with the next yeah, and, and talk about modeling and you know mm-hmm. population health and looking at some of the big data databases that are out there. There's some really great opportunity for rehabilitation research in this area.
1: It's it. it I really feel like there's a very wide open um, horizon for us to look at in research. Absolutely. Which um, I think with my background in particular in biochemistry and bioengineering. I guess, you know, you hinted on in your talk about, um, you know, the preventative or protective effect Mm -hmm. of uh, exercise itself with respect to, you know, various types of cancer. You mentioned at least seven or so that had significant data to suggest that. Can you... um, hint at all or highlight, you know, if there's been any studies looking at the pathophysiology to to support that? Yeah, and this is another
2: area wide open for research. So where there's been, where there has historically been some evidence, a lot of it is um, sort of secondary outcomes in some of the exercise research. Have looked at biomarkers, right? Mm-hmm. How do we impact inflammatory markers specifically? Um, and, you know, we know exercise can pro-inflame individuals. It mm-hmm. um, can also mitigate this pro-inflame state that our cancer patients tend to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, there's a bit of um, a positive effect there. There's an impact on insulin markers, right? So if we look at some of those. But what is really interesting and where I think we're just starting to look more closely is really at the tumor microenvironment. Mm-hmm. So what is happening to tumor growth, uh, overexpression of some of these antigens that the tumor presents? Mm-hmm. Does exercise help to mitigate um, wh- those the, that over-representation or overexpression uh, of these markers that accelerate growth of the tumor? Um, and there, uh, gosh, I can think of, I know that some of the folks at Memorial Sloan, mm-hmm. Lee Jones Lab have looked at this. Um, so there's... Um, uh, also, energetics is another area, mm-hmm. you know, how the inflammatory process associated with obesity uh, as a driver of the development of cancer, and we looked at some of that evidence today too. Um, there's a, a, a great research lab in, at USC uh, out in California. Um, Christina Daly Conright mm-hmm. is doing some amazing work looking at... Um, Obesity markers with exercise in individuals uh, with cancer. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some places, but they're just, uh, it, it, and that area of research has expanded significantly in the last decade. Um, but you know, we've we've spent a lot of time in exercise research looking at the impact. First of all, the safety of it, because it's no not a surprise to anyone. Thirty years ago. In the 1980s, um, at Ohio State University, one of the Mm -hmm. first exercise research labs to go down the pathway of working with cancer patients struggled to get IRB approvals uh, Mm -hmm. because the prevailing myth was exercise is not safe for individuals with cancer. So we've Mm -hmm. spent Probably about a decade of exercise research, just demonstrating safety profiles and, and, and you know, how, what were the adverse events? Mm-hmm. Demonstrating that safety now has taken us to a different level of looking at um, effectiveness of our interventions. Uh, and now, like I said, I think we're moving on from there. How do we affect um, the tumor microenvironment? How do we affect? Physiologically, um, growth factors, inflammatory markers. That's a very, researchers that are out there listening, these are great areas to to think about uh, with how does exercise impact those endpoints. Mm-hmm. You're very excited by this. Like, can tell yes, your eyes are am. Really light that lighting moment, up. I Lots know. of
1: questions. Great. I love it. <laughs> um, and then, kind of, you know, more specifically, we've talked about the exercise prescription, you know, it being precise. Can you talk just, you know, very generally about, you know, low intensity versus moderate versus high, or, you know, aerobic versus resistance, just what yeah, that, that
2: um, so there's uh, evidence all over the place there. Um, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I think it's important for rehab providers at any, wherever you are in your practice. Um, whether you work with I love when people say I don't work with patients who have cancer I don't see cancer patients in rehab and I laugh and I kind of say they see you every day Um, because cancer is so prominent within our population Um, so I, I do feel like the precision level of the exercise prescription, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Aerobic versus resistive exercise, yes. That's the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. There's evidence to suggest both are positive. Mm -hmm. So I tend to step back and say, that's great for us to know because do I do aerobic conditioning or resistive? What's my patient's preference? What do they enjoy doing? And then the other thing at the top of my mind is what is not going to do harm? Because in some individuals, for example, if they have bone instability with metastasis, uh, resistive weight-bearing, resistive exercise, weight-bearing exercises may be a precaution. So we may look more at an aerobic plan of care. Um, the converse of that, um, we've talked about prostate cancer earlier, androgen deprivation therapies, um, reduce lean mass. And so in that population, uh, I focus, I would focus you more, the evidence suggests, towards resistive exercise to build lean mass. Mm-hmm. So the good news is um, aerobic, resistive, moderate intensity. Yes, that's sort of the I would say that's the sweet spot if we look okay. at the Venn diagram of putting mm-hmm. all of those together. And then you go into there are some individuals for whom high intensity exercise is, is very beneficial. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Um, there is some research going on looking at um, cancer-related fatigue if in fact high-intensity exercise may be a trigger to reduce the over-inflammatory milieu that is created with chronic cancer-related fatigue. Um, What's exciting though is also if you look at the evidence for low-intensity exercise. So doing something is better than doing nothing, but we do have to eclipse a threshold of activity and intervention to get a response. Um, But low intensity exercise programs like walking, um, yoga, qigong, there's a a nice body of literature that suggests those are effective interventions and um, it seems to be strongest in individuals who have um, uh, high levels of depression and anxiety uh, underlying their cancer diagnosis. And what we do see with those as well is the the, uh, the the frequency of the program, you know, three to four times a week, it's a little bit higher as far as frequency of those low intensity programs. But the duration of the intervention goes out longer, mm-hmm. so 20 weeks, 30 weeks, as opposed to some of these studies that have looked at moderate or high intensity, which are mm-hmm. much shorter duration, six yeah. to eight weeks. Um, so the, uh, the evidence is pretty compelling in that regard. You know, and I always say, like I said before, everyone needs something, um, mm-hmm. but we do need those ongoing touch points um, to better understand, should I um, load the individual more with resistive exercise? They require supervision. There's a safety profile that has to be considered. I can't just give that individual a prescription for a, a written page of exercises to go to the gym and try this out. I want to work with them in a very supervised, tailored fashion over the course of several weeks to assure that they're safe, that they can progress themselves. And then I want to see them back in three months and see how they're doing. So, you know, the ideal should be everyone participates in some level of physical activity while they're going through treatment. Um, they may need more supervision, more intense intervention, they may need less over the course of time, but we in rehab need to develop those pathways, mm-hmm. right, so that we're moving them into and out of our system of care when they need more intense intervention, you know, when their uh, severity of their impairments is greater, uh, and then we need to actively move them back into maybe a community-based exercise program, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um tele-rehab is on the horizon. It's happening. Uh, it will change the way we treat patients in oncology. And I say that knowing that there is some emerging research um, that really will speak to the benefits of using telerehabilitation mm-hmm. in managing functional impairment related to cancer. And telerehab isn't just about getting on the phone with the patient. Telerehab can be videos that are sent to the patient, it can be email reminders, it can be um, video assessments with the patient, but it can also, telerehab can also be the doctor and the therapist having a conversation, um, the rehab doctor and the primary care provider, mm-hmm. having a teleconsultation about the patient and how to advance their exercise program. So there's, there's so much in tele-rehab that I think will continue to emerge and continue to be studied.
1: <clears throat> what would you say at, at this point in time is the biggest barrier to implementation of these, um, you know, precision exercise, you know, specific prescriptions being provided? Like, I, you hinted at a lot of potential research questions, but yeah. at this point in time, what would you say is the biggest barrier?
2: There, there are a few, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we, we always... And, and I don't think this is the biggest, but we always hang our hat on payment.
0: Mm-hmm. Nobody will
2: pay for this. You know, we, we're, we, just, we we just don't get good reimbursement. And, and I think that is, um, to a degree, there's a constraint there. But I don't think it's insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the more that we show not only effectiveness of our intervention, but cost-benefit, I don't think it's insurmountable. Truly, I think the biggest barrier to optimal incorporation of exercise and rehab into the oncology continuum is that we are not um, we are not co-located and we are not intimately integrated into oncology care. From the point of diagnosis, it needs to be a standard that rehabilitation is a part of the care plan. Every patient should see a rehab provider for a baseline assessment, 100%. Uh, And and it's not. They may not need you that day, and they may look at you like you're crazy. Like, why am I seeing a physical therapist today? Why Mm -hmm. am I seeing a a doctor of what? Mm -hmm. And you know, what? I'm fine. Yesterday, Mm -hmm. I played 18 holes of golf, and I go to the gym three or four Mm -hmm. times a week. And then they get hit by this storm of cancer treatments. So I I think that is the biggest barrier to effective uh, effective exercise prescription. And, uh, and, and management, of function, is that we are still in rehab reactive, and we are still an afterthought. So the closer that we can align with the oncology care team, and let's be honest, right? Cancer, the patients going through treatment want information from their cancer care team. Their cancer care team, the doc, the nurses, are overloaded and overwhelmed mm-hmm. with managing the disease and the disease burden, and monitoring toxicities. Mm -hmm. We have to be there as a part of that team to own and manage function. Mm -hmm. And so we take on that responsibility. That's great, I'll take it any day. Send Mm -hmm. me all of those issues and problems that people come forward with because our medical oncology colleagues do not want and do not need to be further burdened with, um, you know, Mrs. Smith's distress thermometer that's marked 8 out of 10 with 15 physical problems Mm -hmm. checked off. Um, They don't know when, who, how do I do these consults, but if we're there and we are a part of the team, we can promote optimal navigation Mm -hmm. to rehab services. Again, right care for the right patient at the right time the biggest barrier to that, I think, is that we are not integrated right now. We are—we're an outlying source an in a different cost sometimes. center, in yeah. a different floor, or we're four blocks away, mm-hmm. and um, and we're seeing the movement towards this. Prospective surveillance was that it was a therapist in the cancer center. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing models of clinically integrated therapists in the cancer center we're seeing models of rehab navigators in the cancer center to be that point of assessment and triage when needed to more intensive rehab services. So it's a different way to do business for us. And and when we can embrace that and we can move towards that, I I think that's the biggest barrier for us to overcome.
1: Wow. Um, So kind of in closing, just wanted to, it, you know, obviously sounds you're very passionate about this field, kind of in a more maybe personal note if you're okay with sharing. Um, how did you come to to this being your main passion? Any advice for our listeners who have an interest in research or starting collaborations or just, you know, general Advice when it comes to your career? Yeah, I think probably
2: the thing that suited me the most was just being open to opportunities as they present themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to PT school in the mid 90s. And um, I came out, I went to school because I was an athlete in high school and college, and I thought sports medicine was the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. And then I got to PTA school, and I was like, wow, this ortho stuff is boring. (laughs) And I really enjoyed neuro. And um, I got out in, I started my career at the University of Penn Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. And at that time, Penn would hire a big group of therapists as new grads. Mm -hmm. And they would make us go through clinical programming and education each week. It was like a little bit of a residency for your first year almost. Mm-hmm. And that was invaluable so I didn't specialize really until the opportunity came up I didn't know anything about cancer yeah. I was working I did a lot of manual therapy work and I was working with individuals who had chronic pain which led me to palliative care a lot and um, in 1999 the uh, cancer center at Penn wanted to start a cancer rehab program and um, we started with lymphedema and we ramped that up And um, the training and education that came with that led me to oncology. And you know when you find something that you just love, that you just love and you want to be a part of and you want to learn, you crave the knowledge. That's what I found in oncology. Um, and moving forward at the time at Penn, you know, we would see things there that you wouldn't see anywhere else in the world. It was a top-tier cancer center. So the exposure, I was completely immersed, completely exposed. Um, I never thought I'd be a researcher until I started a protocol (laughs) looking at early intervention, because it just made sense to me. As a therapist in the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm seeing all of these Patients and our cancer center docs were so receptive which was mm-hmm. positive. It's because I had a great physiatrist that I was working with there Andrea Cheville, who's amazing and um, She really broke down the barriers and got these physicians to the surgeons specifically to start sending patients We were seeing head and neck folks immediately post-op We were seeing the breast cancer folks almost immediately post-op mm-hmm. and that really led to the question um, what if rehab is more engaged even from the beginning and so we wrote up some of these as a case study and then you know it took me down the path of some pretty esteemed people at the National Institutes of Health and the Bethesda Naval Hospital who had a research lab they came and they said oh my gosh, this is exactly what we want to do. We've started a protocol, a research protocol. Can you come work with us? I'm like, I don't want anything about research, right? Just like I didn't know anything <laughs> about cancer when I started down this pathway. But you find things that you love doing and you pursue them. Mm-hmm. And I always say that to folks. I'm like, if an opportunity comes up and it is aligned with your interest, it may not be aligned with your skills. Guess what? You can learn anything. If you can solve the sure. problem, you can learn. If you have good problem-solving skills, you don't need to learn the newest, latest, greatest. Is it dry needling? Is it and Graston techniques? Is it what what laser are you using? Mm-hmm. If you can solve the problem, you can learn any technique, but find something you love and solve those problems. That's probably the most important
1: thing that I can suggest for people to do. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Stout, for taking the time of your busy schedule to come and you know give us this really insightful grand rounds lecture. Um, really enjoyed interviewing and talking with you for our podcast. And um, it's clear that you are you know very passionate about what you do. Provided a lot of insight um, with respect to the clinical research that you're involved in, the research involved in the field, um, and when it comes to advocacy as well. Um, so, you know, definitely applaud you for all of the work that you've done, and uh, thank you so much again.
2: Well, thank you for having me, but also just for this opportunity to come and do the grand rounds for you all. I think there's nothing more important as a researcher and as a clinician who's developed this expertise. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more important for me to do than train and help to support the training of the next generation. You guys need to come way forward much faster than I did or any of us that are sort of at the top of the field. Well, yeah. my job is to help to coach you and facilitate mm-hmm. you so you can put me out to pasture someday, <laughs> soon. <laughs> because no pressure. That's, but that's, yes. that's really that's how it should goal. be. Yeah. We should, giving back and bringing along the next generation of researchers, research questions, ideas, facilitating the knowledge base and encouraging that interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's a passion of mine as well. So I'm thrilled to have been here today. Thank you.
1: Thanks for this. This was really fun. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, I appreciate absolutely. it. Thanks. No problem. And thank you again for, you know, putting that out there. Um, your mentorship, that's definitely something that we all as trainees, whether it be, you know, as therapists or physiatrists, um, look to uh, to to forward our field. So, all right. Thank you so great. much thank again. Great. Thank you. Have a great day. You're Good luck, thrilled. everyone. <laughs>
0: Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.